ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. G'day, welcome to PM. I'm David Lipson coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Tonight, Australia Day celebrations, ceremonies, awards and protests as police move in on dozens of masked white supremacists arresting six. Also, the Stage 3 tax cut changes might help millions of taxpayers, but millions more will miss out on any benefits. What's the government going to do for them? And growing concern for Ukraine as it heads toward a third year fighting Russia's invasion. The most likely outcome is that you'll see just a shifting line of contact, but nothing really decisive. But it's not impossible that the war could start to go quickly, precipitously in Russia's favour. Happy Australia Day and thanks for your company. Normal people don't celebrate Australia Day with a balaclava on. The words of New South Wales Premier Chris Minns after police intercepted dozens of masked white supremacists as they were heading into central Sydney where an Invasion Day rally was taking place. A number of arrests have now been made. ABC reporter Ethan Ricks has been on the scene. Ethan, what's the latest? Well, David, New South Wales police say that about at about 11.30am today, they were alerted to a group of men, all heavily disguised, boarding a train at Arts Harmon, and officers along with a riot squad then stopped that train at North Sydney train station before members of the public were directed to leave. Police then boarded that carriage where they located about 60 men who were concealing their face and carrying a number of items, including shields and a flag. Police say at least four people, sorry, six people were arrested and 57 rail infringements were issued to that group. The group were then asked to move on to a nearby park and they're now surrounded by a significant number of police. A lot of members of the public started to become concerned as some of those people started to yell out some uh, slurs and it became quite uh, obvious then the motive of the group because they started to yell racist abuse and even held up a white supremacist banner. They were then moved on again out um, out of the city um, to make sure they weren't making any moves towards the Sydney where of course like you said an invasion day protest was taking place. Yeah they were dressed entirely in black head to toe and as you say wearing masks in some cases balaclavas Uh, most of them, almost all of them, had their faces concealed. It seems at the very least they were intent on intimidating members of the public. Uh, Is there any suggestion they were intent on doing something more? Well, that's what we're still trying to figure out at the moment. But what I've been able to learn since they were moved on, they split up into two groups. And the group that was behind the front group, one of the men leading those groups was well-known neo-Nazi Thomas Sewell, who's previously been convicted of a serious assault. He was asked by the media as he was storming along with that large group whether he was intending on uh, attending or disrupting that Invasion Day rally in the city because, of course, that's exactly where the train was heading towards. He claimed he didn't even know that such a protest was going on today um, and basically dismissed such questions, instead deciding to criticise police. But, of course, as we heard, Premier Chris Chris Minns has uh, praised the actions of police, making sure that nothing ended up too serious happening because of this large group of men. ABC reporter Ethan Ricks, thank you. Thanks, David.
Well, despite some being intent on trouble, the vast majority of Australians have enjoyed the holiday at beaches, waterholes and backyard barbecues. People from all over the world officially became Australian at citizenship ceremonies across the nation and more than a 1,000 people were honoured for their services to the country. But large crowds also gathered in capital cities to protest what many Aboriginal Australians see as a dark and painful day for their people. Jacqueline Breen with this report. This Australia Day for some parts of the country was a scorcher, a record 49 degrees in Birdsville, outback Queensland. And at Bondi Beach in Sydney, while it was hot, there were perfect conditions for a celebration. Oh, the weather's cracker. It's just like Bali. We just got back from Bali. It's heating up pretty quick. We're loving it. Ah, this Australia Day, I reckon we're just going to have a swim and maybe have a couple of schooners afterwards, yeah. Basically, just sit down, enjoy the sand, the water beach and, day, and the day off, obviously. Just enjoy the day, um, celebrate how lucky we are to be in Australia, yeah. I love it. Honestly, I love it that Australia is the best country in the world. Some want the date of Australia's National Day changed, but for many it remains massively popular. Thousands flocked to the shores of Sydney Harbour to celebrate, where the British landed and hoisted their flag on this day in 1788. Australia Day means to me a great day of celebration of our national heritage. Maureen Gildart travelled all the way to Sydney from parks in western New South Wales, like she does every year, arriving early so as not to miss a thing. The Aboriginal um, ceremony this morning was great. I've, I've got... Um, reserved um, seating for the uh, at the overseas terminal for the nighttime ballet, the boat ballet. I so thoroughly recommend that to people. And the and the other events um, going on tonight. Plus, I'm looking forward to watching the parade. As per tradition, the classic Ute Muster went down in Darwin, the shearing competition in Bombala. For some, this was their first official Australia Day as citizens. A choir sang outside this ceremony in Western Sydney, one of 300 held across the country today, where Indian-born Shipa Singh became a citizen alongside her husband and daughter. So basically, citizenship means for us to become a part of this beautiful land. And actually, if you talk about being a part, so from the very first day we started or we arrived in Australia, we feel like we are part of this community, we are part of the society. But yes, uh, today is a formal and official celebration of that feeling. So. But for others, that feeling of belonging isn't there or is much more complicated. And Indigenous communities are finding different ways to engage with Australia's National Day. Dawn ceremonies of remembrance and mourning are becoming more common across the country and included as official events. At an elders ceremony in Adelaide, the crowd was told how much more painful this Australia Day feels, coming after last year's bruising defeat of the voice referendum. I'm still grieving for what happened. It feels like 21st century. What didn't we do as Aboriginal people and, and our allies? What didn't we do to open the hearts to the majority of Australians? What didn't we do? What did we miss? 
Tens of thousands turned out again for Invasion Day rallies across the country, which have grown in size substantially in recent years. Among the sea of people in the streets and the red, yellow and black flag, this year there were also Palestinian flags, waved by march organisers and attendees in solidarity with the people of Gaza. In Sydney, the Invasion Day march ended at the Yabin Festival, a massive celebration of Aboriginal culture with music, dance, stalls and families everywhere. This year's theme was Surviving, Guiding and Thriving, which resonated with the crowd. Jacqueline Breen reporting there. Well, this year's Australian of the Year Award went to melanoma researchers who used their acceptance speech to reiterate the long-standing message... There's nothing healthy about a tan. As extreme heat hits much of the country's east, Amber Jacobs asks, is that message getting through? As temperatures soar into the high 30s across Sydney, crowds flock to Bondi Beach in the city's east. And on a day like today, you'd hope sunscreen is being lathered on. I do use um, sun creams but mainly after sun creams, yeah. Ah, it's pretty hot. I'm wearing sunscreen on my face, yeah. When the sun is out, it's quite strong here. You'll die from it, so everything they can do to help protect us is great. We've got the 50 plus. Oh, actually, it's only 30 plus out, so we need to go ramp up. On a stinker like today comes heightened risk of sun damage. And for Sydney cider Holly, tanning no longer holds any appeal. If the objective is to get super tanned, then there's heaps of products that you can use that are not actually the sun these days, so there's always other options. Cancer Council figures show two in three Australians are diagnosed with skin cancer in their lifetime. And melanoma is the most common cancer in Australians aged 20 to 39. It's something Richard Scoiler and Georgina Long, joint Australian of the Year winners, are determined to change. The co-directors of the Melanoma Institute of Australia are credited with saving the lives of thousands of people with their immunotherapy treatment for melanoma. We know that prevention is better than cure, so to get that message out there, that try and stop the glamorisation of, of tanning, to try and reduce the incidence of melanoma, indeed other skin cancers. So we, will, we, we want to call out social media and the, and the glamorisation of tanning and work with others to make that happen. Messaging surrounding sun safety has been around for decades. It's been over 40 years since the Cancer Council launched its first health campaign featuring the well-known slogan Slip Slop Slap. The original ad featured a seagull called Sid singing a jingle and the campaign has evolved over time. So is the messaging starting to get through? Professor Anne Cust is chair of the Cancer Council's National Skin Cancer Committee. We know uh, for young people uh, who were exposed to the slip slop slap messages of the 80s and 90s that that did have an impact on reducing rates of skin cancer for younger people. Uh, but for most age groups uh, in Australia, the rates of skin cancer are still going up, um, particularly for people aged 40 and above and particularly for men. Professor Cass says attitudes towards tanning aren't changing as fast as they'd hoped. For adults in Australia over the past few decades, we've seen a bit of a shift in attitudes towards tanning with research showing fewer adults preferring a tan. But 
We know from data that still two in five adults report liking to get a suntan and um, even more so for adolescents. Australia has the highest rate of skin cancer and melanoma in the world, almost double that of most other countries. People who were growing up exposed to those lip sop fat messages did start to use a bit more sun protection Um, And those people now we start to see, you know, a a slight reduction in the number of skin cancers. But young people these days uh, haven't really grown up with the same messages that we did. Uh, There was a bit of a gap in the national prevention campaigns. And older people, I think, get a little bit complacent and they some people think the damage is done. That's why we see still the rates going up. That's Professor Anne Cust, the Chair of Cancer Council's National Skin Cancer Committee, ending that report by Amber Jacobs. This is PM. I'm David Lipson. Coming up, what it was like in the eye of Cyclone Kiralee as the damage is assessed. Now to the fallout from the government's broken tax promise, the changes to the Stage 3 tax cuts leave more taxpayers better off. But what about those whose incomes are so low that they don't actually pay any tax? A third of Australian households don't pay tax at all. And they're often some of society's most financially vulnerable people. As David Taylor reports, they feel unheard and unseen after the government's big tax announcement. The Stage 3 tax cut changes might benefit millions of Australians, but not those struggling the most, because they don't pay any income tax. Brisbane resident Vanessa Howe is one of these people. Well, obviously, it's I've been left out because unemployment benefits aren't going up. Battling cancer, Vanessa lives on roughly $25,000 a year, receiving both JobSeeker and rent assistance. And I pay $385 a week in rent, alone. Um, So I can't live on that and I'm um, decreasing my um, savings in my bank. The Stage 3 tax cuts are targeted towards working households because Treasury says they've been the hardest hit by the rising cost of living. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese. I recognise, as the Treasury analysis confirms, working households have experienced the fastest rise in their cost of living. But without more help from the government, Vanessa Howe fears homelessness. I can't, you know, obviously afford what's happening now, um, so I'm going to be looking for somewhere else, which is cheaper. (laughs) Yeah, right. Um, But... uh, Are you worried about ending up on the streets? um, I am worried, yes. Modelling from the Australian National University shows nearly a third of households neither benefit nor lose from the tax changes because they don't earn enough to pay any tax. They're the ones who face the most financial stress, the highest rates of poverty, but they don't get anything from this package. The Grattan Institute's Economics Program Policy Director, Brendan Coates, argues there is enough money in government coffers for them too. So there is space in the budget for things like a raise in rent assistance. So turning the 15% increase last year's budget into a 40% increase, put about $1,000 into the pockets of low-income renters, would cost about $1.2 billion. Raising JobSeeker by another $55 a week, as we've recommended, would cost about $3.5 billion. So that's that's about 4 to $5 billion in spending that you would need to do. Now, there is space in the budget to do that at the moment, given where commodity prices are. 
The challenge is probably does it add to inflation? It probably does add marginally to inflation. And so ideally, we'd, we would have been in a situation where the stationary tax cuts are a little bit smaller rather than having gotten a little bit bigger. There's every chance, I suppose, that something will be announced before the budget or you know, at, uh, during the May budget. That's true. And we recall that both the, the revised tax package has got to make its way through the parliament. So it's still going to be negotiated with the Greens. And what I would hope to see is through the course of those negotiations, we do see, see things like an increase in rent assistance as part of the legislative package that passes. Greens leader Adam Bant has already hinted his party will be pressuring the government to help renters if they want parliament to pass the stage three tax cuts. As this now works its way through the Parliament, we'll be asking, is this really the best that Labor can do for low and middle income earners in the middle of Labor's housing and rental crisis? And today in a statement, he said he wants to know why there's no space in the budget to raise the rate of Centrelink while forging ahead with a $4,500 tax cut for every billionaire and politician. Vanessa Howe worries the financial help she needs won't arrive soon enough. Um, yes, I, I put in for everything and I possibly can. So, um, yeah, it's basically... But it sounds like it's hard. Know, yeah, yeah, it's a bit scary is more to the point, considering I've never been out of work so in all my 63 years. So um, it is, yeah, scary. That's Brisbane resident Vanessa Howe speaking with David Taylor. The first electoral test of the federal government's changes to the Stage 3 tax cuts will be in the Dunkley by-election in Melbourne's outer southeast on March the 2nd. Our reporter Samantha Donovan has been in Frankston to ask people how they feel about the government's changes and whether they think the Prime Minister has broken an election pro- promise. You can't trust anyone these days, any government, to say or do what they say they're going to do. We mentioned it about 100-odd times, that he's not going to do it, and he he does it, it's not on. None of them keep their promises. What do you think of the fact that the government says these tax cuts will be better for lower and middle-income earners rather than the the top end of town? Uh, Do we believe them? That's the whole problem. Just don't believe them anymore. If you're going to go out with such a a massive promise, then you need to follow through with it. Especially in this this, um, climate, with the cost of living and everything, it makes it really, really hard because, um, you know, like in 2019, I earned almost similar to what I'm earning now, but I had a lot more disposable income. And you know, then I was like, oh, yeah, I'm rich. But now, even though I'm earning basically the same money, it's very, very hard. So what the government's announced, though, is that if you're a lower or middle income earner, you'll be paying less tax. Yeah, yeah. So is that a good thing? Yes. I think the Labor government, his support has dropped quite significantly since he's gone into power. So hopefully this election will will give them some understanding of what people actually think. Well, I would love to pay less tax, you know. I'm a disability support worker. I work a lot of hours, work weekends all the time, you know, and my tax is ridiculous. Like, I earned 1800 and oh, my tax was nearly $500. You know, I'm working during the night, all different hours, and the tax for me is a joke. It's just no incentive to help people 
and people need me. So the Prime Minister's hoping that by having people pay less tax in those lower and middle income brackets, people will want to do more hours. It sounds like you're pretty much working to the max anyway, yeah. but if you're paying less tax, would you would you want to work more hours? Oh, definitely, definitely. I don't know, to be honest, I don't think it will. I've got a business, so I pay a lot of tax, so I don't think it will, it will affect any of us because we earn too much money. So yeah. you're not going to get as much of a tax cut. How do you feel about that? Well, I'm a bit annoyed because we thought we were going to get it. Will that influence how you vote in the Dunkley by-election? I haven't even looked into it. I didn't even know there was an election. Prime Minister announced yesterday he's going to change the Stage 3 tax cuts so they benefit lower and middle income Absolutely. earners yeah. more. What do you think of that? I think it's a wonderful idea. Absolutely. The more that people around any suburb can get it cut, do you think it'll appeal to a lot of voters absolutely. in Dunkley? Oh, absolutely. A lot of people say the government, the Prime Minister, has broken an election promise that they consistently said they'd implement the Coalition's planned tax cuts. Does that trouble you, that it's a change in plan? I think things are getting so desperate, I think something did have to be done. That's some of the people in the Melbourne seat of Dunkley speaking to our reporter, Samantha Donovan. We are approaching the second anniversary of the Ukraine war and there are some worrying signs for Volodymyr Zelensky's forces. The conflict has slid down the international agenda and support packages are being blocked in the US and Europe. Ukraine is also investigating a fatal plane crash after Russia claimed Kiev shot down a military aircraft carrying 65 Ukrainian prisoners of war. Nell Whitehead has more. At a UN Security Council meeting, Russia and Ukraine traded blame over the fatal plane crash in the Russian region of Belgorod. Moscow claims the aircraft was carrying 64 Ukrainian prisoners of war and was shot down by Kiev's forces. Dmitry Polyansky is Russia's deputy representative to the UN. All the data we have indicates that we're dealing with a premeditated crime. The Ukrainian leadership was well aware of the route and method of transporting soldiers to the place of a pre-agreed exchange. However, the Kyiv regime decided to disrupt it for some reasons inexplicable to any sensible person and in the most barbaric way. A short video released by Russian investigators shows a plane wreckage, but its claims have not been independently verified. Ukraine hasn't denied shooting down the aircraft, but is calling for an independent investigation. Kristina Hyovashin is Ukraine's deputy representative to the UN and says Moscow bears responsibility for its prisoners. The Ukrainian side was not informed of the need to secure the airspace in the area of Belgorod city during this specified period, as has been done repeatedly in the past. This alone may constitute intentional actions by Russia to endanger the lives and safety of the prisoners. It's another concern for the government of Vladimir Zelensky as Russia's invasion grinds towards its third year. Michael Kimmage is a professor of history at the Catholic University of America and a former State Department advisor on Russia and Ukraine. He says we shouldn't forget how much support Ukraine still has. However, some of that Western support, uh, outside support for Ukraine, is beginning to diminish Certainly Russia has not been pushed back in the last year, if anything. They're sort of inching forward. And the last couple of weeks have witnessed a lot of really large-scale air attacks on Ukraine. And it's not clear how well or for how long Ukrainian air defences are going to hold. In the US, around $60 billion of military funding has been held up for months in Congress. 
and $54 billion of financial support from the EU has been stymied by the veto of Hungary's pro-Russia leader Viktor Orban. And that's taking a toll on Ukraine's battlefield. The European Union estimates Ukraine was firing up to 7,000 artillery shells each day last summer. Russia was firing 20,000. The effect is gradually being felt and in a sense the problem is worse than just U.S. funding being blocked. It's that some of the ammunition promises made to Ukraine from its supporters are coming in too slowly. But uh, the U.S. story is pivotal because the U.S. provides uh, a lot of really sophisticated weaponry. And I think it's maybe not so much the soldiers on the front line who are feeling this yet although they may soon. I think it's more the civilians of Ukraine who have seen more and more Russian missiles landing on their cities. And that's uh, in part a direct result of interceptors and other kinds of technology that the US is not able to provide unless Congress would change its tune. And so what do you think militarily then we can expect from the year ahead? Is it a case, far from trying to gain ground, of Ukrainian soldiers sort of digging in and trying to hold, hold their positions? It's certainly that. And, you know, I think it's an open question if Ukrainian air defenses would really start to spiral downward, whether you might see advances uh, on the part of Russia that you really haven't seen since the very beginning of the war. I think the most likely outcome is that you'll see just a shifting line of contact between the two militaries, but nothing really decisive. But it's not impossible that the war could start to go quickly, precipitously in Russia's favor. And that, of course, would take us all by surprise in a sense and could be one of the extraordinary stories of 2024. That's Michael Kimmage, a history professor at the Catholic University of America, Nell Whitehead, our reporter. Well, back home, tens of thousands of homes are without power as ex-cyclone Kiralee makes its way inland across northern Queensland. Locals could face lengthy electricity outages and Townsville residents are being told to conserve water as damage assessments are still being made. Some farmers are actually disappointed that the cyclone didn't bring more rainfall for their crops. The ABC's Lucy Cooper is in Townsville. Lucy, the cyclone passed right over where you were. What was it like? Yeah, it was really, really interesting, David. I mean, it all really kicked off around 7pm last night. Um, You know, where I live, there were bits of a building next to me. The sheets of metal on the roof were flying off. Um, We could see trees coming down in front of us. And then after one or two hours of these really wild gale force winds, it just went silent, incredibly eerie. And I checked the Bureau of Meteorology radar and we were right in the eye of it. So that eye passed over Townsville and it was, yeah, really, really interesting. So how serious is the damage today? Yeah, driving out and around the Townsville area, that's really where a lot of the damage is, um, you know, there's a lot of debris and there's really big trees, like big figs all over the all over the um, road at the moment. And uh, we've had an update this afternoon and going into this evening, they expect, you know, more than 60,000 people will be still without power across parts of North Queensland and updates are to come really tomorrow and the next day into how soon those people can get their power back. Okay, so it doesn't sound like anything too catastrophic. What about water supplies? Are there any concerns over that? 
Yeah, a water alert remains active for the Townsville region, so that means they're without power, so residents need to conserve their water um, because water sites are currently affected by those power outages. So everyone's just been reminded a lot of people did, of course, fill their bathtubs with water So and, and also got things from the supermarket. So, yeah, people just being asked to conserve it for now. When Cyclone Jasper hit Queensland in late December, it was the rain that followed that actually caused most of the damage. It doesn't look like that's going to happen with Cyclone or ex-Cyclone Kiralee, does it? incredibly happy about this for a lot of people. Everyone was extremely concerned about that because uh, Cyclone Kiralee crossed the coast and quite quickly it weakened to a tropical low. Now, the concern was that it was if it was a slow low then it was going to hang over you know, parts of uh, north and, and western Queensland and dump a lot of rain. But as we've seen as the day has gone on, it just moved quickly and completely missed some parts of, of who were actually really wanting the rain. I headed west today um, towards a town called Charters Towers, about 90 minutes outside of Townsville, and I spoke to a lot of graziers out there, uh, one of which is Ben Benetto. He lives at Virginia Park Station running cattle, and he said he would have appreciated a bit more rain. We are going to definitely need um, a good bit more rain here. We haven't had that... Um, good drenching, I suppose, that we are chasing at the start of our wet season. Um, it's going to help for sure, but we had started to really dry off out here. So, um, yeah, we're definitely keen still to jag a couple of inches at some point. That was uh, Ben Benetto, who lives on Virginia Park Station around Charters Towers. And yeah, fingers crossed for a lot of graziers out this way who are hoping for a bit more rain to finish up this second half of the wet season. But looking um, to areas, uh, you know, a bit further towards the Gulf and even towards the northwest, towards Mount Isa, there are going to be some isolated storms today and tomorrow. So never know what may come. Lucy Cooper there reporting from Townsville. Well, that's the program for this week. Thanks for joining us here on PM. The producer of the program is Mike Edwards. Technical production by Lena Elsadi, David Sargent and Joel Kasim. I'm David Lipson. Hope you've had a wonderful Australia Day, no matter how you've been marking it. Of course, not everyone has had a wonderful day. But for those others, have a great weekend. And for everyone, have a great weekend. Thanks for your company. See you next week.